Appalachia is a 200,000 square mile region that extends from southern New York to northern Mississippi. It includes all or parts of 12 other states, including states like Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Often misunderstood and misrepresented, Appalachia is home to some of the greatest writers and publishers in the United States. This program, Now Appalachia, seeks to profile those authors and publishers and talk about how Appalachia and the Appalachian region has influenced their work. From the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio, I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network and Blog Talk Radio as we continue to profile the outstanding writers and authors who have either lived in Appalachia, worked in Appalachia, or currently call Appalachia home as we continue to profile those authors here on the program. And once again, our uh, episode comes to you just uh, outside the uh, campus of the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss. And we are uh, delighted to be here as we start our second season of interviews here on Now Appalachian. We appreciate all the support and on-site assistance that the folks at Ole Miss provide us as we bring you this episode of Now Appalachia. And we are delighted today uh, to have uh, an outstanding historian and writer with us today to talk about his latest book, after the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon. And that writer and uh, scholar is Casey Pipes. And Casey joins us who um, today on the program. He served as an advisor to President George W. Bush and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. He's co-founder of the issues management firm Corley Pipes, partner at the public affairs firm Highwater Strategies, and is also the Norris Fellow at the Eisenhower Institute at Gettysburg College. His writings have appeared in USA Today and Politico, and he is the author of Ike's Final Battle, The Road to Little Rock, and The Challenge of Equality. And We're delighted to have uh, Casey with us today to talk to us about his latest book, After the Fall, about the remarkable comeback of Richard Nixon. So Casey, welcome to Now Appalachia. We're so delighted to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to it. So I wanted to ask you first, before we get into your book, uh, something about your uh, bio and a place that you spent some time, and that is at Gettysburg College, where you were the Norris mm -hmm. Fellow at the Eisenhower Institute at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what, what that institute is and what you did when you were there uh, and maybe some of the work that you're still doing there for that institute at Gettysburg College? So I became affiliated um, with the Eisenhower Center uh, at Gettysburg College in 2009, shortly after the publication of my first book, which was a biography of Dwight Eisenhower, as you mentioned. Um, and the Eisenhower Center is essentially devoted to uh, promoting President Eisenhower's uh, convictions and principles, and in particular to building the next generation of leadership. So it's focused really at the undergraduate level uh, it's a little different in that regard. A lot of uh, presidential uh, libraries and centers are, are focused around graduate work. Um, this one is, is primarily geared towards helping 
undergraduates become acclimated um, into public service. And so um, we take about 15 kids, 15 students at the college every semester. Um, we have them do real re research, primary source material research, uh, and we expose them to uh, life inside the Beltway. We take them to Washington. We, we have a number of people, particularly at the staff level, who do politics for a living, kind of show them how you get into this kind of work. Um, and, uh, and then we do uh, sort of follow up after that to kind of help guide them as they, uh, many of them make their way to Washington upon graduation. So uh, I've been doing that about 10 years, very, very rewarding work. And again, it's, it's all designed to sort of honor uh, the legacy of Dwight Eisenhower, who was, was very, very much uh, a fan of the next generation of America at one time was a, a college president, president of Columbia University, a job he actually enjoyed, uh, despite uh, it kind of being a mismatch in, in some ways. So that's what we do. And it's been very rewarding and, and very fulfilling for the last 10 years or so. And of course, being at Gettysburg College, there's just so much history in, in that town and in that area with what happened there uh, during the Civil War and, and the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's uh, Address there. And, and really just uh, an area soaked rich in history that, that is a great place to bring those students in. Well, it sounds like a great uh, institute, a great project that you guys are doing there. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're still involved and glad that that's going well. I'm glad that that's a tremendous opportunity for those students who are interested uh, in, in public service and and in government, how all of that works. So your book, After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon, is uh, a wonderful book. It's a wonderful contribution to uh, Nixon scholarship, people that are interested in President Nixon and interested in that period. Um, I, I wanted to ask you first, though, uh, about a story that appears kind of towards the end of the book and have you give us some context and background because I found it fascinating. And, and I know this book picks up... Um, in 1974, after Watergate and, and after President Nixon has kind of moved on and resigned and, and kind of getting into that next phase of his life. But you have a story at the end of the book, which I think is really interesting, and it involves President Nixon, it involves Pat Nixon, his wife, it involves Phil Donahue, and it involves Donald Trump. So can you tell us a little bit about what that scene is and what's going on there? And uh, Nixon and Trump have an interesting exchange, which uh, you highlight in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? It was one of the one of my favorite stories in the whole book that you wrote. Well, one of the themes of the book is how Nixon in his post-presidency is still very, very active and he still has a very sharp political antenna. He always had really good political instincts. Um, he was very much natural at that side of politics. We think of him as being sort of unnatural uh, at sort of the public side of politics, the, the, the speech making and the glad handing, those sorts of things. They didn't come as natural to him. But he had a sort of a sixth sense about issues and, and policies and about leaders and about potential leaders. I mean, he very early on uh, sees Ronald Reagan as a very viable. Uh, candidate for president. He early on in 1980 sort of sees Reagan as the guy and uh, and much of the book focuses on his relationship with Reagan during the eight years of, of the Reagan administration. Um, but he also was sort of looking out for, you know, people that weren't on the political radar. And there is a story in the book that in the late 1980s, uh, his wife, Pat Nixon, one day at home in, in uh, in New Jersey at that time, they had moved to, to New Jersey after being in New York for a number of years. 
watches the Phil Donahue show and the guest that particular day uh, was Donald Trump. And she remarked to her husband that evening how impressed she was that, you know, he was a, a business person, an entrepreneur, but he talked about policy. He talked politics. He had answers. He made a lot of sense. He had sort of a knack for, you know, speaking in ways that, that common people could understand. And so Nixon wrote a letter uh, to then businessman Donald Trump saying that my wife saw you on the Phil Donahue show. She said you were terrific. Uh, and I think that if you ever were to run for office, uh, you'd be a real winner. You'd be a natural. And that note is now framed and hanging in the Oval Office. It's one of Donald Trump's prized possessions. And Trump, in many ways, uh, and I've talked about this publicly and in, in, on, on foreign policy, Trump, in many ways, sort of sees himself uh, as a throwback to Nixon and the school of realism. Uh, on foreign policy. So there are some similarities there as well. But yeah, that, that note is, uh, is in the Oval Office today. And it goes all the way back to, I think, 1988. So uh, Nixon had a knack for uh, seeing what the next big thing was going to be years in advance of others. And, and that's one example of it. It was one of my favorite stories in the book, and I think it has so much connection and truth to to what we have going on today. And as you mentioned, that his ability to see that Donald Trump had the had the chops or the gusto or whatever word you want to use to to possibly do this is really interesting when we look at what's going on uh, in Washington today, and especially with President Trump and the presidency. I, I wanted to go back to, to 1974, 75 uh, for a minute because you write about uh, Gerald Ford and Nixon. Uh, and kind of the relationship that they had. And of course, Ford uh, famously pardons Nixon. Uh, and he has that line, you know, our, our long national nightmare is now over. But they have a, a, an interesting relationship that's really not what a lot of people think it was or maybe should have been. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about that relationship that, that Nixon and Ford had both around that time and then uh, in Nixon and Ford's later years? I think it was strained, I would say. Um, I mean, they certainly were very friendly, but they, they were two very different men. They came from very different places. Um, I mean, Ford was an absolute product of the Midwest, an absolute product of the House. His entire elected career had been in the House of Representatives. So he was used to sort of reaching out and, and making deals and, and finding compromise. Um, Nixon uh, had been um, in the Senate. He had been a vice president. He had worked for a very decisive president and Dwight Eisenhower for eight years. So I think he tended to be a little more decisive. Um, so they, they were different. They, they, they brought different personalities um, to the table. And I think that obviously this is complicated by Watergate. I think Nixon in many ways was very grateful um, for what Ford did in pardoning him. Um, but I think he certainly, um, again, this is, this is part of what the book focuses on is, is him sort of wrestling with what to make of Watergate. It was the, the, the size and scope of it was something that, you know, he, he says to one of his researchers on his book in 1977, when they bring him the chapter on Watergate, wow, this is the first time I've ever understood it. I mean, this was something that, he was not originally involved in. He, he certainly didn't know all the ins and outs of it. And so this whole post-presidency, he's trying to grapple with what, 
you know, what is my responsibility in this and, and what do I say about this? I think Ford probably saw Nixon um, as not being grateful enough uh, in some ways. Uh, Ford certainly pays a price, as we know, in the 1976 election uh, for the pardon. Nixon, by the time the 76 election comes around, is beginning to kind of uh, get out in the public a little bit. Uh, he makes a trip uh, to China during this time, which uh, I think the Ford White House was not wild about. I write about that in the book uh, because it sort of brought Nixon back into the public conversation. Um, so it was a complicated relationship, friendly, but but complicated. And I think um, presidents, uh, and, and I write about Nixon's relationship with other presidents in the book as well. And uh, those were all complicated relationships as well. So what, what was Nixon? I know this is kind of a theme that you, you cover in different ways in the book, but what was it that Nixon really was trying to do? Because, you know, in, in this post-presidency, and, and there's a great chapter, chapter 14, where you, it's titled the 1984 election, but uh, you talk about Nixon kind of wanting to get back into the fray, and he uh, agrees to sit down with CBS and, and uh, talk to Frank Gannon, who is his former aide, who was Nixon's former aide, right. and they talk for 36 hours, and Nixon's very very, uh, very open and, and with a lot of frank candor about things. But, but what, what was it that, that, that he was trying to do kind of uh, in these later years? Uh, stay relevant, uh, stay in the discussion. What, was he wanting to be the elder statesman that, you know, President Reagan and, and, and President Ford and e even President Clinton and President Bush would call on for advice? What was he really wanting uh, kind of in his later years in terms of, of being relied upon as a post-president or a past president? What's interesting is when he becomes an ex-president in August of 1974, there are no role models for him. There are no ex-presidents alive. Johnson has died in 73, Truman in 72, Eisenhower in 69. And had they been alive, their model of an ex-president would not have worked for him. All three of those men, like most of the ex-presidents before them, essentially retired. I mean, they went away. Johnson goes to the ranch in Stonewall. Uh, Eisenhower goes to Gettysburg and Palm Springs. Truman goes to Independence. They go away. And Nixon doesn't have that option. And as I say, you know, he really sort of invents the modern ex-presidency. And he invents it out of necessity. He has to make money. He has to make a living. He has enormous legal bills. He has medical bills. At one point, he has, I think, $500 in the bank. There's no obvious way for him to make money. He's disbarred in New York. Uh, he has to resign from the bar in California and the Supreme Court, so he can't practice law. What is he going to do? How is he going to survive? How is he going to make money? So he invents this sort of role of the modern ex-president, and it's basically the role that ex-presidents to this day all follow. He starts writing books, and his books become, because of his knowledge on foreign policy, they become bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers. He starts delivering speeches, and, and the public can't get enough of it. I mean, it's Richard Nixon. He's out talking. He's giving advice on the Cold War and China. Uh, and so these become big, big ticket items. Uh, and because of the success of the books and the speeches, and then eventually the media appearances, beginning with the Frost interviews, and then on into the 80s, he's doing Meet the Press. He's doing C-SPAN. He's doing you know all the Sunday morning shows. Uh, Time Magazine, Newsweek Magazine puts him on the cover in 1986. The headline, he's back in a big feature story. 
So he's back in the public sphere. He's back in the media eye. And because of all that, it allows him to go back into politics as a president slash elder statesman. And with Clinton Bush and Reagan, as I document in the book, I mean, he is routinely being called upon uh, at the highest levels, not just by the presidents, but by their senior advisors. And in the case of, of Reagan and Bush, these are people that Nixon knows personally. Many of them came from the Nixon administration, Alexander Haig, George Shultz, uh, Lynn Nofziger. These are people that he knows, and they're calling him and saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? So he starts writing memos, and then eventually he's being invited to the White House to brief senior staff, and then he's briefing presidents, and then he's talking to presidents on the phone. This continues all the way up until the very end of his life, all the way up until 1994. He is inside the Clinton White House meeting with Bill Clinton, talking about strategy on the democratization of Russia and how to handle Boris Yeltsin. Uh, when you consider uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, had worked uh, as a young lawyer investigating Watergate. So here he is 20 years later, uh, meeting with Bill Clinton inside the White House, talking about strategy. And of course, who asked to deliver one of the eulogies at his funeral in April of 1994 in Yorba Linda, Democratic President Bill Clinton. So just a remarkable comeback. And I think at the beginning of it, he just was sort of trying to make a living was his goal. And then once he began to successfully do that and he became much more in demand and people realized he still had one of the sharpest minds on foreign policy of any American out there, he becomes an elder statesman. He becomes an advisor and a counselor to three presidents. And I think he relished that role because he believed in some ways his presidency had been unfinished. His work had been unfinished. And I think particularly with the Cold War, with Reagan and then with Bush, he sort of relished the opportunity to see that work through, to see the end of the Cold War come about. And he played a, a much larger role in that behind the scenes, as I document in the book, than we've ever realized before. We're speaking with Casey Pipes, author of After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon here on Now Appalachia. So, Casey, I wanted to ask you, what got you interested in Richard Nixon? Well, I mean, being a fan of... 20th century uh, American history, certainly he's one of the, the giant figures. I mean, certainly he's a Shakespearean figure. Um, and I've always been interested in the, the untold stories of American history. So the Eisenhower book was the story of Eisenhower and the civil rights movement culminating with Little Rock. Um, no one had ever told that story from his vantage point before and the role that he played. And then here we have the post-presidency of Richard Nixon, the last 20 years of his life really the only period of his life that's never been written about before. There's a Robert Sam Anson book called Exile that covers the first years. There's the Monica Crowley books about her time as a, a an advisor to Nixon at the very end of his life from 90 to 94, but no one's ever told the whole 20-year story before, in part because those papers are not presidential records. They occurred after he was president, so they are privately owned and controlled by the family. And so I had to get the permission of both uh, the Nixons and the Eisenhowers to, uh, to, to let me have access to those papers. They were kind enough to do that. Uh, and again, what I found is he was even more active and more successful during this period than we've realized before uh, in, in guiding uh, public policy and guiding presidents uh, and in, in affecting uh, world affairs. I mean, he never stopped working really up until the very end of his life and uh, his input 
on everything from, uh, you know, the Saturday morning radio address, which I, I document in the book. We've never known this before. It's a Nixon idea. He suggested to Mike Deaver early on in the Reagan years. What if we started a, he called it a Sunday radio address to take advantage of the president's communication skills. Uh, Deaver changes this to the Saturday morning radio address, but it was a Nixon idea. We've never known that before. And then all the way through with the Cold War and his advice and counsel to Reagan on uh, negotiating with Gorbachev, Reagan at one point, uh, the negotiations are in, in somewhat jeopardy because Gorbachev doesn't want to deal with Reagan as long as Reagan insists on the strategic defense initiative, which was Reagan's plan to build a nuclear shield around America. And Nixon suggests to Reagan, why don't you offer to share the technology as a way to kind of box him in, take away his complaint and bring him back to the negotiation table. It's exactly what Reagan does. It works. Uh, and they end up with the 1987 INF Treaty, which essentially eliminated an entire class of, of nuclear weapons. An agreement, incidentally, I should mention that uh, Nixon thought Reagan gave away too much, even though he had worked with Reagan throughout the Gorbachev summits. He, he actually didn't like the final product, uh, which is kind of interesting. And I document that in the book as well. So just remarkable how active he is in this space and how brilliant his mind was in coming up with these strategies and, and using American power and using American ideas uh, to promote uh, American interests abroad and, and uh, just a, a story that needed to be told. And I was happy to be the one to tell it. So you mentioned you had to speak with uh, the Eisenhowers and the Nixons uh, to get permission for the papers to kind of go inside this period of President Nixon's life. Um, how else did the writing process go? How long did this take? And once you were able to get access to those papers, what other kind of research did you have to do to supplement that in terms of getting a manuscript put together for this book? It's probably a 10-year process from beginning to end. Um, I relied very heavily on the primary source material because it was new material and it was material that frankly had never been seen before in many cases. I also did a number of interviews uh, with former Nixon associates, people that were around him during this, this post-presidency era, uh, people like Ken Kachigian, people like Hugh Hewitt. Um, and so that was very helpful as well, kind of filling in some of the gaps. Um, and then, of course, I looked at all the other material that's been written. But again, there's, there's not a lot that's been written about this period. Um, and so this is, was, was sort of new, new ground. And uh, uh, it was kind of fun to be able to kind of break new ground and, and have something new to say. And, and as I said, I, I thought it would be compelling when I got into it. And as I got into the research, it was even more fascinating than I, than I had hoped for. And I, I hope that comes through in the, in the, the writing of the book as well. Oh, it absolutely does. And people that are interested in Nixon or fascinated by President Nixon and, and his entire life and presidency, uh, th this does fill in that void, that, that untold chapter of what happened to the president uh, after Watergate and after he resigned. I, I want to ask you also about, um, as, as we kind of get into the book, um, and we kind of move through that, that the, you know, the, the later years of, of President Nixon's life. And I, I know, I know you, we don't know him, none of us. He's been, he's been gone now for a number of years. But based on what we, we read about in the book on, on kind of how he um, viewed his responsibilities, as you were talking about as the elder statesman, and of course we know all of his problems with the media that he had when he was uh, president. But it, it, taking all that into account, what, what we know about him and how he viewed uh, politics after he was president, if he were alive today, what do you think he would say about 
our political climate today about what President Trump does daily on the media, calling them fake news and going after CNN and the New York Times? And what would he say about our foreign policy footprint today with what's going on with Iran, with what's going on in Afghanistan? What are some of the things he might say based on what you know about him and based on the research in your book? What would he say about those issues in our country today? Well, he certainly would not be a fan of the media. He wasn't in his own lifetime, and I don't think that his opinion would have improved uh, over time. He, I don't know that he would have liked uh, President Trump's approach. I don't. I, it's hard to imagine Richard Nixon with a Twitter account. That was not really his style, uh, had that existed back then anyway. Uh, but he certainly would not be a fan of, of the coverage that uh, – that we see in the news today, and, and I think he would be willing to, to call that out. In terms of foreign policy, I do think that there are a lot of similarities. Again, Nixon was from the school of realism, the idea that American foreign policy should be about protecting American national interest. And uh, we've had a series of presidents in recent years that have come from more of the school of idealism, that we should promote American values. We should promote democracy. We should promote human rights. Uh, President Bush comes to mind. George W. Bush, Barack Obama comes to mind. So Trump in many ways is a throwback that we want to do nothing but protect American national interest. And I think even with respect to China, again, I don't know that Nixon would be a big fan of threatening trade wars and imposing tariffs. Um, I don't think he'd be comfortable with that, but he certainly was not naive about China. I mean, this is one of the misconceptions about his China initiative is that he somehow uh, thought that, you know, we were going to become best friends with the Chinese. Far from it. He viewed this as uh, a tactic consistent with Cold War strategy. And he specifically separate the Chinese from their patron, from the Soviets. And so uh, he was very cold-blooded about that. And, and and, and what he was trying to achieve with the Chinese. Now, he certainly acknowledged that we can't ignore a country of this size, um, which at that time was essentially American policy that we recognize Taiwan and, and not China. Uh, so he certainly would acknowledge that they have to be a player on the world stage. Uh, they have to be a player in Asia, but he would not be surprised at, at some of the shenanigans going on. He would not be fooled by some of the things that uh, they're trying to do in terms of commerce and certainly uh, in terms of their military. He would be very clear-eyed and, and uh, you know, want to be closely monitoring what they were up to. So I, I don't know that he would uh, be surprised by any of that. I just, uh, I, don't, I don't know that um, tariffs and trade wars uh, were something that, that he would have ever uh, agreed with. But uh, he certainly saw the Chinese with a clear eye and, and would not be uh, surprised by anything they were capable of. So based on all your research and all the work that you did, what is one surprising thing that you learned about President Nixon, either that you maybe didn't know before you started this project or as you were doing your research and putting the book together, you thought, wow, I, I had no idea this connected to President Nixon. What, what's an interesting factoid or an interesting something that caught your attention that really sticks out in your mind? Well, I think I mentioned earlier that obviously the Saturday morning radio address, which we've never known before. And then obviously his advice and counsel to Reagan uh, that directly led to the INF treaty. 
I think those are major factors that, that we haven't known before. I think on a personal level, I was surprised at how many relationships he maintained during this period, including with prominent Democrats, um, including with Hubert Humphrey, who, as I, as I write about in the book, had been his opponent in the 1968 election. And yet Humphrey and Nixon maintained uh, communication over the years. And as Humphrey became gravely ill with cancer, uh, they talked on the phone several times and, and Humphrey said, you know, basically I'm dying. And when I die, I expect you to be at my funeral. And he did that on purpose because he wanted the country to see Nixon in a public setting at a Democrat's funeral because he thought it would, it would allow Nixon to sort of, you know, come back into the people's good graces. If, if, if Hubert Humphrey could have a relationship with Nixon, so could the rest of the country. And I think it, it says a lot about both men, it certainly says a lot about Humphrey, but it says a lot about Nixon that he did maintain a friendship with Humphrey over these years and that he certainly wanted to be at the funeral and he did go to the funeral. Uh, and it was his first public appearance uh, in Washington since Watergate. Um, I mean, George McGovern. I mean, th these are all people that he, he still had ties to during this time, uh, even though many people considered him to be toxic. I mean, I mean, even his worst enemies thought this is a guy who um, many of them thought he got a bad rap. But but if not, certainly has a mind for foreign policy and we should, uh, you know, stay in touch with him and hear him out on things. And so th that was surprising to me, the number of, you know, political opponents that that still had ties to him during this time. I think that says a lot. So, Casey, as we uh, finish up our interview here with you today, what are you working on next? What is your next project? What is your next book? Uh, what is the next uh, untold 20th century history story that you're going to explore? I, you know, I don't have anything set in stone yet. There's a couple of ideas out there bubbling, as they always are with, with writers. Um, I'm still promoting this book quite a bit and, and will be for the next few weeks. So uh, hopefully at the end of the year, beginning of the next year, I can kind of sit down and look at uh, where to go next. But I, I am very interested in sort of the, the last half of the 20th century, you know, as America becomes a superpower. Um, and certainly I've written about two presidents now who were very instrumental in that period, very instrumental in the cold war, Eisenhower, Nixon. So uh, we'll see where that leads me, but uh, that's uh, to me that's a, a fascinating period of time. It's when I grew up, and so I remember uh, some of these presidents, you know, from my own memory. And uh, I think that's uh, there's a lot of great stories to be told there. So, Casey, if anyone in our audience wants to get in contact with you uh, to talk to you about your your work uh, at Gettysburg College, or uh, talk to you more about uh, After the Fall, or your Eisenhower book, or just get in contact with you in any way, first of all, how can they do that? How can they get in contact with you, and where can they get copies of After the Fall? So, the book is in books stores everywhere um and it's also on amazon.com so you can order it online um you can also find me on my website which is casey with a k k-a-s-e-y-s pipes p-i-p-e-s.com uh that has all my contact information on it there you can reach out to me there uh you can even email me there so um happy to to hear from people and uh hope they'll pick up the book and uh see what they think 
Casey Pipes has been our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We've been talking with him about his latest book, After the Fall, The Remarkable Comeback of Richard Nixon, profiling one of America's greatest presidents in the last uh, post-presidency years of his life. If you're a fan of uh, President Nixon or want to know more about what presidents do uh, after they leave office, especially this particular president and his relationship with other presidents, uh, from the time he leaves in 1974 up until his death. Uh, it's a fantastic book, um, and there's so many things I wish we had time to talk about that we didn't get to today, but uh, if you're a fan of the presidency, you're a fan of presidents, you need to have this book on your shelf and you need to check it out. Uh, it really does, as Casey's talked about, fill in an important gap uh, about one of our nation's great presidents. So, Casey, thanks so much for coming on now, Appalachia. All the best to you with My this pleasure. book. And uh, we look forward to having you back on as you keep writing. So thanks so much. All right. Thanks for having me. We also want to say uh, thanks to our producer of Now Appalachia. Her name is Teresa Russ. And remind you that the executive producer of Now Appalachia is Pam Stack. And remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope.